Hello and welcome to another episode of Mind of Mitch. My name is Mitch Berenson. I am a 50-year-old divorcee, and this is my audio diary. Good day to you motherfuckers. <laughs> okay, I can hear your shocked cries. Uh, Mitch, you're exclaiming. Uh, it's not like you to swear like that. Are you possessed by some demon like Linda Blair and the Exorcist? Or are you uh, perhaps angling to become an Opie and Anthony-style shock jock? Well, to answer the first question, no. I am not possessed by a demon or by Satan. I'd say the only time I feel under the influence of some larger force is when I've had a few shots of Dan Aykroyd's Crystal Head Vodka and I'm stuffed to the sinuses with Kung Pao Chicken. Having said that, I have received some emails suggesting that if I were to make this show a little more profane, a little nastier maybe, it might attract more listeners. I'll admit my vocabulary can be a little mild, a, a tad vanilla, a trifle uh, Popeye's regular chicken. What can I say? I'm generally a mild-mannered Clark Kent gent. I pull out seats for ladies, fold open doors for the elderly, and buy beer and marijuana for teenagers. Not younger than 15, mind you. However, if being a shock potter gets me more attention, it just might be worth it. I could always use more listeners and more importantly, more Patreon subscribers. So I figured I'd give that a try. Gang, fuckle the buck up. It's time to get raunchy. So I had a, a good fucking week. Uh, yesterday I went for a goddamn walk with my new wife Esmeralda, who is one hot piece of ass. We'd been boning all day in all kinds of positions, my dick going in and out of her pussy on miscellaneous occasions, both of us eating the other's ass, and Frenching with abandon. We needed to take a fucking break from that shit, so we went for a walk in the park hand in hand, fucking romantic as shit. Suddenly, we saw an old fucking woman walking towards us along the path. She was seriously old as shit, 85 or some fucking shit like that. As we got closer, we can fucking see she's fucking crying. Esmeralda, being a really kind motherfucker, asked her what was wrong. This lady said her big-dicked fuckhound of a husband had died the day before, and she was in mourning. She apologized for being so ass-blastingly open with her grief, but I consoled her by quoting my favorite line of poetry about grief from that drunken scrotum Dylan Cockslapper Thomas. The lovers be lost, love shall not, and death shall have no dominion. This lady cheered right the fuck up and said, You're not nearly as useless a piece of shit as you look. Thanks, dipshit. Time for me to return the fuck home and go ham on my double-sided dildo. See you fucking losers later. I'm off to Pound Town. Um, okay, so that was kind of an interesting uh, trial run. I can't say it felt entirely natural. Typically, I only swear on those occasions where... Most people would, uh, you know, stubbing your toe on the coffee table, discovering you were given regular mayo instead of chipotle mayo with your DoorDash chicken finger order, burning your naked genitals on the bottom of an overheating laptop while you're trying to watch WandaVision in bed, etc. As a result, that felt a little forced. Quite frankly, it also occurs to me that there are certain swear words, no matter how filthy I'm trying to be, that I am just not comfortable saying. 
Uh, for instance, the B word, specifically the one that rhymes with Buddy Rich, and the C word, the one that rhymes with Linda Hunt, uh, I consider those words to be misogynist, and you'll not hear them leave my lips. Now, you did hear me use the P word, although I won't use it here now, since I'm out of character. I, I consider that to be more of a sexual word than a derogatory one, although I'm sure some of you out there will disagree. I also wish I had a greater range of profanity in my vocabulary. I, I think I leaned far too heavily on fucking shit, or some other variations thereof. I'm sure many of you listening to this will be inspired to bombard me via email with several epithets I could add to my rotation. Boy, do I look forward to that. Also, a note regarding accuracy. At no point did the elderly woman my wife and I encountered uh, refer to her deceased husband as a big-dicked fuckhound. She also made no references to dildos whatsoever, although she did inform me that I appear useless on first glance. I used a little poetic license. I can only hope that if said woman is listening, she can forgive me for being loose with the facts. I also hope that if she does own a double-sided dildo, she is in fact going ham on it, albeit safely, and with the gravity and dignity becoming of a widow. Time now to introduce a segment I like to call Mitch's Musical Arcana. In this segment, I will discuss a musical figure whose contributions to the art form are worthy of celebration, but have been sadly lost to history. This week I'd like to discuss Morris Clegg, a rock and roll pioneer whose aggressive, up-tempo barn burners drove teens into a frenzy wherever he played. Clegg was born on April 18, 1932 in Clendenin, North Dakota. The eldest of three children, Clegg's parents were professional gamblers and con artists, who became briefly notorious in 1939 for attacking Vice President John Nance Garner with a toy microscope because he wouldn't buy their magic popcorn beans. After his parents were both imprisoned in 1942 for painting baseballs to look like potatoes and selling them to local markets, Clegg was placed in his grandmother's care but after two months, he ran away from home and spent the remainder of his childhood crossing the U.S. via hitchhiking and cargo train. It was in 1948 in Kansas City that a 16-year-old Clegg met and started running numbers for the notorious gangster Mikey Crumcake Watson, leader of the widely feared Sweetie Pants crew, a gang that terrorized the American Midwest and developed a stranglehold on the local corndog racket. It was Crumcake who taught Clegg how to play blues guitar a skill that Clegg began to cultivate by performing with an R&B trio called the Clodhoppers at a chain of crumbcake-owned nightclubs across the Midwest. The band eventually put out a series of singles on Watson's own label, Crumbcake Records, including Burning and Rocking, Gumbo Baby, My Wiener and Beans, and My Baby's Honey Trap, Trapped Me Again Honey. The latter single got the attention of Sun Records founder Sam Phillips, who arranged an audition for the band without Crumbcake's knowledge. Phillips decided he was only interested in signing Clegg as a solo artist, and managed to convince Crumbcake to release him from the group by giving him half a million dollars and a hammock. Hammocks had been illegal in Kansas City since 1826, due to a drastic misreading of a verse from the New Testament. Clegg's debut single with son, Puddle Dick Racer, shot to number 10, 
and led to a legendary performance on The Ed Sullivan Show, in which Clegg sawed off his own arm and then sewed it back together without getting around to performing any music. Clegg's ensuing tour was also a rousing success, seeing him pack concert halls, baseball fields, and even, in one instance, a retirement home for nudists. Unfortunately, that particular show marked the beginning of the end for Clegg's career. Despite the crowd's urging, Clegg refused to join them in their nudity. This resulted in a firestorm of outraged media gossip and speculation as to the reason for Clegg's shyness. After a week of furious scuttlebutt, Clegg held a press conference during which he made a shocking revelation. The area around his left nipple contained three gray hairs. The backlash was immediate. Clegg's singles, including Mongoose Woman and Dong on the Dashboard, were pulled from stores and destroyed, some by steamroller, some by mass bonfire, and some by being fed to championship professional eater Goran Guts Romanovic, recent winner of both the International Chompers Cup and the Eastern New Jersey Sir Eats a Lot commemorative boot. Clegg's tour dates also dried up as no venue owner would want to risk booking Clegg for fear of his three grade nipple hairs spinning out of control and causing a riot. His music career at an end, Clegg returned to North Dakota and took a job powdering men's Adam's apples at the airport and spent his downtime playing guitar inside an adult movie theater until management finally asked him to stop. He passed away in 1968 after his life-size Herman Munster doll came to life and shot him. Clegg may not have enjoyed the lasting fame of other early rock and roll luminaries like Elvis, Little Richard, and Chuck Berry, but his music has developed a cult following. In 1978, the Ramones covered the Clodhopper's tune Speedway Sultan, while Hootie and the Blowfish recorded a version of Don't Stare Down There If You Don't Really Care in 1996 for the soundtrack to the summer blockbuster Knife Gun. In 2003, Clegg was posthumously inducted into the North Dakota Music Hall of Fame, and 2012 saw the release of a biopic directed by Ethan Hawke, entitled Eggs and Spit, which earned a Best Actor Award from the North Dakota Critics Association for star Chad Hanks. In 2015, a statue of Clegg was erected in the Memoriam Maze at the International Peace Gardens at the Manitoba-North Dakota border, which serves as a tribute to all victims of Herman Munster. Most of his singles are available in either physical or digital form. My favorite tracks, Soda Jerk Jerry, Don't Bite Off What Your Butt Can't Chew, and Jockstrap Inferno. Go forth and listen, and while you're doing that, pour one out for the man they called the Lutheran Lothario. Alright gang, I'll close out this episode with another reading from my unpublished memoir, entitled Letting My Soul In Through the Back Door. I've read from a couple other segments in previous episodes, and they've been pretty well received, so I figured I'd bring you one more this season. This chapter takes place in the aftermath of my divorce from my ex-wife, Lara. It describes a trip I took to the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. Chapter 42, Covering the Bases All my life I've been simply mad about baseball, aka the game of summer, aka the sweet science, aka the sport of kings, aka the perverts showdown. For the entirety of their existence, I've been a fan of the Toronto Blue Jays. Since childhood, I've idolized such star Jays players as Roberto Alomar, Jose Batista, Joe Carter, Kalingus Bopino, and Richard Nightstalker Ramirez. I'd always fantasized about taking the trip to baseball's very own Valhalla, the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. Founded in 1939 by hair tycoon Red Fugues as a front for his involvement in organized gambling, prostitution, and mongoose cage fighting, 
The hall is obviously a popular destination for diamond heads like yours truly, and yet somehow I'd never been able to swing it due to the demands of work and family life. But then one day I signed my divorce papers from Lara, and then the next month I was taking my two-weeks vacation in upstate New York. In hindsight, it was a mistake to book an entire two-week vacation just in Cooperstown, a town with a population of 2,000 people. I might have driven to New York, but I'd allowed my license to lapse, and I'd already booked two weeks at the bed and breakfast, which, as it so happened, had a spider infestation the two weeks I was there. The only things more disconcerting than waking up to large ringed welts on my legs and spider webs in the corners of my room were the thoughts of my exploded marriage that stalked me throughout my vacation. I couldn't look at the Babe Ruth or Mickey Mantle or Reggie Jackson exhibits without thinking, God, Lara would have pretended to love it here. I was surrounded by baseball history and lore and absorbing every last sight and artifact, from Cy Young's glove to Hank Aaron's cap to Ty Cobb's collection of Victorian-era pornography. I took in hours of footage of Willie Mays speeding around the bases, Ted Williams cranking dingers, and Nolan Ryan explaining to an intrigued crowd of sports reporters why he should be allowed to commit murder without consequence. And yet, I didn't feel what I was hoping to feel. There was no sense of awe, no sense of being swept along into the dust storm of sports history and transcending my current life and times. No, I remained steadfastly tethered to the concerns of the present, to my dissatisfying job, and my lonesome existence, bereft of companionship and good cheer. But then, towards the end of my stay in Cooperstown, something utterly remarkable happened. One day, I was having a solitary picnic in a field near the museum, when, out of nowhere, I heard a distant voice announcing, in a soft yet authoritative baritone, If you build it, they will come. I was shocked. Could it be that some disembodied entity was telling me to construct some sort of baseball diamond on that very spot, a la Field of Dreams. Was this really happening? Maybe I did have some purpose for being. Maybe I had the kind of cosmic mission that would redeem my existence. Just as I'd reached the height of rapture, however, I heard the voice say, Haha, just kidding. Perplexed, I looked up and around and saw baseball great Pete Rose staring down at me while holding a megaphone. He chuckled mischievously and explained that, he was in the area, dropping off his monthly written threat to the Hall of Fame, ordering them to lift his ban and to validate his parking. He said he often pulls this prank on unsuspecting strangers he sees sitting in parks or open fields. He then offered me an autograph as a sort of apology. While listener, this experience was profound and altering in a couple ways. First of all, I was pranked by a baseball legend, so it was remarkable in that sense. Second, and even more importantly, I was annoyed enough by Rose's little joke that I started cursing him out, and this made him angry enough that he attacked me physically. After thrashing me rather soundly, he threw a check at me for $200,000 and ran away, presumably as a way of settling the score and persuading me not to press charges. Well, it worked. I did not consult the police, and I used that money to help send my sons to college. The next time I would be physically attacked by a sports legend in a field, however, I would not be so lucky. More on that in the next chapter. Okay, well I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, that's been Mind of Mitch for this week. Until next week, I leave you with this sage advice. If the late Warren Zevon ever rises from his grave and stalks the land as a member of the undead, see him in concert, the man was a gem. Toodles. <laughs>